the more kind of horrific and gruesome cholera epidemic of 1832. And it tends not to be discussed as much, nor, nor either its representation in literature. Um, however, the epidemics, a series of epidemics in northern cities in England and several cities in Scotland in the spring and summer of 1847 uh, produced some really interesting dynamics in local and national newspaper reporting in that period and also in narrative, in literary narrative. Um, so the typhus epidemics have an interesting place in the history of, of contagion and contagion narratives, as I'll explain in a moment. Um, and also because they're, they're kind of connected with both environmental context and with infection. And they also have political dimension, there's lots of questions about kind of scapegoating of immigrants. Um, and my main focus today is the trope that we see in the newspaper reporting and in, in narrative fiction of the rescuer, visitor, hero, martyr in the, into the seats of contagion in these cities. Um, and the intersection between that trope and a national conversation about heroes and heroism that seems to be going on at the same time. So typhus is interesting in many ways, and, and partly because it's transmitted um, by lice through their feces, and they hop from person to person and inject the, the feces, and that can even happen if you've squashed the louse, then that can still kind of transmit the, the disease. So, the role of the lice, is, the louse, I suppose, is not fully understood in the late 1840s. Um, and typhus is often confused with typhoid, which is a completely different disease, not distinguished until a bit later. So because it clearly passes from person to person, it looks a lot like contact contagion. And it's generally understood to be a contagious disease in this period. But there are also environmental, lifestyle, sanitation contexts there as well that clearly seem to produce um, typhus. So this, um, this passage in clinical lectures on contagious typhus from a little bit earlier, from the 1830s, by Richard Miller, um, kind of articulates this combination of, of context quite well. So, transmission is visible, but it's uncertain as to how it works. So this passage neatly shows how there is a kind of conflation between miasmatic contexts and um, directly contagious contexts. So it's a virus, it's a contagion, it's an emanation, it's a poison, it comes from the bodies of the diseased, but it's on their stuff, it's in their houses, it's on their clothes. Um, so contagion and miasma and contagious miasmas are all kind of combined in the way that typhus is understood. Also important is the context of the fomite, and that's a term still used um, in, in medicine, of the, the kind of unit of contagion that passes the disease from person to person. <coughs> And obviously the fomite in this instance was the lapse, but this isn't understood. So there's a lot of emphasis on the buildings, on the clothes, on the possessions of the sick, and on the ways in which these kind of nebulous little fomites might be carried around on people who have been <coughs> near the sick or who are sick. So it's connected with lifestyle and environment, and there are approximate causes, particularly post-Great um, Famine, of, of hunger and of, of dirt too, which make it kind of understood as a famine disease and tend to confuse the issue and allow lots of different intersecting readings of typhus. 
but it also clearly visibly spreads from the bodies of the disease, the diseased, and that's important. So the key context for the, the epidemics of 1847 is, of course, the, the Great Famine in Ireland um, and the subsequent immigration. Um, and attention is, is often kind of focused on that immigration, in, certainly in representations of the Irish in Victorian fiction. Um, but typhus, in the pockets of the cities where the Irish um, had, had emigrated to and spreading beyond, was a really kind of visible um, indication of, of what had happened and of that shift in population. Um, many people were already suffering from typhus in Ireland, and this had been documented in, in preceding months of how, how many deaths from typhus there had been in various different counties and so on. So some might have arrived already suffering from typhus, um, and then, of course, conditions in the towns and cities in which they um, lived were, were also likely to produce diseases, including typhus. So then there were significant, dramatic, alarming outbreaks of typhus in Sheffield, in Manchester, in Liverpool, in Hull, in Aberdeen, Dundee, Glasgow, and other cities I might have forgotten to name check, in June-July time in 1847. And the reporting in newspapers, both um, national and regional, often stresses that Irish context initially, um, with a slightly distasteful slant in the Times article which follows. Um, typhus is still going on, it hasn't really slowed down, but it is pretty nearly confined to the Irish immigrants and the localities in which they congregate. This kind of um, overlaps with the way that sometimes the right-wing or tabloid press often talks about the threat of um, TB epidemics in London today and attributes that to unscreened immigrants and the squalor in which they live. And there's, there, there are distinct kind of overlaps between those two discourses. Um, but the thing is then, then typhus spreads, often, um, often blamed on Irish mendicants and navvies kind of wandering into the better areas of town and carrying disease with them. Um, what becomes alarming is the disease spreading to the kind of the better areas of the town. And the fear of contagion is, is so powerful that the dead are going unburied in some areas because people don't want to go near those, those diseased bodies, um, even to kind of put them in the ground. So in this atmosphere, a set of instructions was published first in the Scotch Reformers Gazette and then reprinted in lots and lots of regional newspapers how to preserve health and avoid the typhus fever, which was a long list of rules. Um, the general rule um, underpinning all of it, though, was temperance, cleanliness, and breathing pure, pure air are the surest means of securing health um, and protecting against typhus. So there are, there are a long list of rules which conflate the moral and the medical um, and are profoundly judgmental. I've chosen one to kind of show how that works. Do not enter your neighbours' houses or allow idle gossipers to come into yours. So there's a combination of kind of anxiety about contagion from individuals, but a moral dimension also, because you could just say do not allow visitors. You could just say do not allow curious visitors. But the kind of the toxically contagious notion of idle gossip becomes here conflated with the contagion of, of disease. So as I say, these instructions are reprinted in numerous regional publications in 
June, July 1847, and all of them, each iteration of these um, instructions kind of prefaces it in different ways, but always emphasizes the threat of infection as well as living conditions. And the, the um, instructions conclude thus, um, with a profoundly kind of moralistic, um, laissez-faire attitude that seems to want to counter the question it assumes the sufferers are asking of who will help us, who is going to come and help, um, which kind of seems to look forward to um, the lectures that were to be written up as Samuel Smiles' self-help in the next decade. Um, so, yeah, who, who's going to help? Well, no one until you um, clean yourself up. We're not going to risk health and life in a vain attempt to help those who will not help themselves. All of this then indicates more confusion between miasma and sanitation and contagion. And it's worth noting that the late 1840s are often thought of as being kind of peak miasma moment when contact contagion was profoundly out of favour because it would necessitate anti-democratic, autocratic measures of quarantine and boundaries and contagion. And that doesn't really seem to be the case here. Um, contagion is, is miasmic, but it's acknowledged. And the, the mindset that contagion seems to lead to in these instructions is not of quarantine or boundaries or barriers, but of deeply, um, a deep laissez-faire kind of attitude. However, this wasn't the only um, lesson that, that individuals kind of inferred from the contagious nature of typhus. Um, and the epidemics. The Bradford and Wakefield observer in 1847 took a, a, a potential for a different lesson to learn, which is that, yeah, the disease begins with the poor, but it, but it spreads. And the lesson is common brotherhood, common interests, and common dangers. If everyone can be infected with the same thing, then everyone must be part of some common brotherhood. Um, and there is less distinction um, than is sometimes assumed to be the case. And that's the lesson of contagious disease in this slightly more, this paper with a slightly more liberal bent. Um, even more emphatically, the Dundee Courier in December of 1847, after the epidemics have died down a little bit, um, argued that one would be morally blind not to see something like a call for retributive justice the neglect and being too long indulged towards the poor. So it, it's even more profound. It, it, there's an idea that you know, we will regret this if we um, kind of demonise and segregate and ignore the poor, which starts to sound a lot more like a kind of social problem novel from the late 1840s. <coughs> the reference here to faring sumptuously every day comes from the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man from Luke 16. Um, which is also used by Elizabeth Gaskell in Mary Barton um, to make the point that the rich never help the poor. That's just not what they do. Um, so the, the parable is that if you don't know it, that the rich man ignores Lazarus every day and then ends up burning in Hades, wishing that he'd been a little bit nicer, um, but it's far too late. So the, the Dundee Courier is suggesting that you know, we, we'll all end up like the rich man, regretting our, our selfishness too late. Um, in a much more kind of a much more visceral way than Elizabeth Gaskell uses the parable in even in Mary Barton. So there's a, a kind of significant overlap, I think, between some of these um, these ideas that are beginning to emerge in regional press 
and in the, the tropes um, that we shall see in Victorian fiction shortly. The Sheffield and Rotherham Independent, also in December 1847, after the epidemics have died down, takes yet another, sees yet another kind of um, angle that's important to reflect on post-typhus epidemics, which is that people have, people have sacrificed themselves as if in battle. And so it is a contagious disease, but some people, clergy, medical men, ministers of religion, have been the ones who went to help, have braved those seats of contagion, and many of them have died. And they are framed very much as kind of the fallen on a battlefield. Um, and the argument is that you know, their families deserve posthumous recompense for, for the sacrifice and the heroism. And heroism and martyrdom are repeatedly used in this article that these, that these men have shown. Um, Pam Morris, in an article about Shirley, uh, uh, Heroes and Hero Worship in Shirley, in 19th century literature journal in 1999, usefully um, articulates and, and sets out a, the idea of this national conversation in the 1840s about heroes and ideologies of government in ways which connect back to a lot of the things I've been talking about. So Morris um, neatly sets out and articulates that there is, on the one hand, an ascendant Whig or bourgeois ethos of individualism and laissez-faire in this, in this decade. That comes up against residual patrician values of paternalism, traditionalism, and inherited duty. At the same time, there are emergent demands for mass participatory democratic order as we see in, in the Chartist movement, most notably. And I think these three ideas of um, Whig, bourgeois, individualism and laissez-faire versus the idea of the patrician, paternalistic hero and democratic order are all in various ways <coughs> intersecting in or visible in those passages that I've shown from, from regional newspapers. So you have Thomas Carlyle meditating on the you know, modes and role of leaders, questions about, um, about heroes and about hero worship. Is that fundamentally undemocratic, unhelpfully romantic? What does a hero do? Do we need heroes? Here, in this particular um, narrative, what heroes do is they sacrifice. They, they risk contagion and they sacrifice themselves. And this, um, this is where I'm going to just kind of talk about novels a little bit because I think some of these discourses are even more evident in representation of typhus in Victorian novels of um, just, just following and during, in one case, the typhus epidemic. So it tends to be less overt a focus on the Irish than in some of these newspapers, but arguably that association lingers in their representation of typhus. Um, Harriet Martineau's Dear Brook is slightly earlier, but includes the trope of a, a kind of a young girl who becomes a better person by nursing um, victims of typhus. There are lurking echoes or anticipations of that debate being staged in papers about typhus specifically and about modes of heroism and martyrdom. So in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, um, children's bodies at Lowood School after a typhus epidemic are buried rapidly within the seat of contagion. And then Bronte articulates a kind of repeated condemnation of those who shun the sick. If you are a venal or hypocritical character, you will flee from contagion. That's how it works. But she also increasingly, um, I suggest, raises 
queries about the value of martyrdom um, and whether that is, is a useful or valid response either, as, as is particularly evident by the time she gets to St. John Rivers, um, whose martyrdom is, is pointless. <laughs> Charles Kingsley's yeast makes direct allusion to contagion and infection and is, is concerned generally with the, the upper class and the middle class tendency to, to ignore and shun the poor. Um, but concludes when the um, wonderfully named heroine, Argemony Lavington, um, in a quest to become a better person, goes to visit some typhus sufferers, catches typhus, and dies in a very kind of abject and sorry fashion. Um, and Kingsley's, part of Kingsley's mission is a call for a kind of new, a new breed of aristocratic heroes who will recognise injustice and do something to address it. So it's interesting that the way he uses infection and typhus here. In Gaskell's Ruth, the venal, the hypocritical and the judgmental ignore the sick when typhus visits the town, but Ruth does not. Um, and she, she tends to them, she nurses them, ultimately she catches typhus from the man who ruined her reputation and achieves a kind of heroism through doing that. So, my, my kind of key points here are precisely because typhus was conceived of as being contagious, which in itself is interesting, <coughs> as I've tried to suggest, it's because of that that these debates can be played out. If England was uncertain about autocracy, leadership and heroism at this juncture, typhus invites consideration of all of these things. Activism in the novel is often allied to complex ideas about heroism and martyrdom. Um, it tends, these novels tend broadly to reject the human implications of contagionist ideologies on an emotional level, but fear contagion and dramatise contagion nonetheless. In different ways, all of these novels and the newspapers that I've um, looked at all are asking whether individuals exist in common brotherhood or in, within a pocket of threatened community, whether they might be cowardly, hypocritical or heroic, both in response to disease and more broadly. Thank you.